Live from Southern California, this is the Jim Rome Show. Nets, Celtics. Game one was not actually a game one. I think what that was was a game seven disguised as a game one. Like game ones generally are feel out games. There was no feeling out about what went down yesterday. There were two teams looking to knock each other the hell out from the jump. Now you tell me, does this sound like the final play of the first game of a first round series? Durant hounded by Tatum. Durant, tough three, late in the shot clock. No good. Celtics had the rebound, Horford. Kyrie tried to do it by himself, but he got burned. Nine seconds to go. Jalen turns the corner on Dragic. Eight seconds. Kick out. Left side, smart up picks. Finds the cutter. Tatum spins, lays it up and in to beat the buzzer. It's over. It's over. The Celtics have won the ball game at the buzzer. Marcus Smart up picked the three. That killed the final seconds. Tatum joined the play late, spun at the rim and scored. Right, Celtics radio with that call. Now, hell no, that was not the final play of a feel-out game. That was the final moment of a brawl, a blood feud right there. And I'm telling you, I am here for it. I love it. Watching the pregame hype, hearing the talking heads hype it over and over and over again is the greatest first-round matchup in league history. After I heard them say that for like the 10th time, I finally hit mute. But then the players go out and they deliver on all that advanced hype. I mean, if that's game one, I will gladly take six more of those. And per usual, I do not have a dog in that fight. Even if a number of those dogs are pretty annoying. Truly, I don't care who wins that series. I just don't. Just know that the Nets are a hell of a lot more annoying than the Celtics. In fact, right about now, I'm trying to figure out who basketball fans nationwide hate more. The Nets or the Lakers? The Nets or the Lakers? Who do you hate more? As always, the answer is yes. I guess it really comes down to who you find more annoying. Le GM and AD or KD and Kyrie? Matter of personal preference, but let's just say that there are lots of people outside of Boston who want to see all of the above get humiliated on the floor. And the worst a day Kyrie has, and he actually had a great day until the end, but the worse a day that Kyrie has, the better the life for Celtic fan. And believe this, Kyrie thought he was having a day. Kyrie thought he was having the ultimate day, when in reality, him letting the double bird fly during the game and then dumping gasoline all over it after the game only made Celtic fans life. Believe me, Celtic fan will be running on liquid fuel and crazy venom come game two. In fact, Celtic fans already heating up for game two. Celtic fans already lubing up for game two. Celtic fan lives for this. And right now, Kyrie is making their lives that much better. Believe that. But back to how that game ended because Kyrie will get his own take later on. Back to how the game ended. What an awesome sequence for Boston. And I'm not even talking about just the finish by Jason Tatum, but the crazy ball movement to set it all up. And shout out to Marcus Smart for making the smart play and passing up a pull-up jumper and then whipping that pass to Tatum. 99 times out of 100. The guy in smart spot is going to take that shot and miss. And then the game is over, but not smart. He pump fakes a couple of nets out of the gym. He gets free. He finds Tatum for the game winner. I mean, that is some beautiful ass ball right there. Beautiful ball. And shout out to Tatum for the finish because that was not nearly as easy as he made that look. Run that back, Alvy. Ten seconds to go. They're not calling a timeout. Front court, Jalen Brown. Brown on the baseline. Five seconds to go. Brown out of left wing. Smart with two, with one. Tatum a layup. God at the horn. Celtics win. Celtics win at the buzzer on a layup by Jason Tatum. And they're going absolutely wild here at TD Garden. Nets radio with that call. A 360 spin into a layup and making sure the ball was out of his hand before the clock hit triple zeros. Smooth as hell. Again, you're going to tell me that was game one? First game of a first round series. 
Like, first-round series normally are like the Heat and the Hawks, where the favorite absolutely blasts the underdog, and everybody knows the real action is not going to start for a while. Not yesterday. Not in Boston. And credit to the Nets. They came back from down 15 on the road. They were on the verge of being the Hawks, of getting run right out of that building. And then they battled back, and credit to Kyrie. Again, he and his act will get their own take a little bit later on. But credit to him for playing his ass off. Except at the very end. Until the final possession. Because that was a bad time for Kyrie to go Kyrie. He tried to go it alone against the Celtics and he paid the price. He seemed to totally forget that he had arguably the best player in the world on the same floor with him. He had Kevin Durant. Yet he tried to go it alone against the best defensive team in the league over the past two months. He gets doubled. He tries to go around it. Then he drives back into a double team, nearly a triple team, and then finally gives it up and passes to Durant with barely any time left on the shot clock. Not only that, on the clock. Not only that, but then he got absolutely dusted by Tatum on that game winner. However, you can't put it all on KD. Or on Kyrie, I said, should say. Because of KD. KD also is a mess. At least Irving was productive and effective and even dominant on offense. KD was none of the above. 23 points, but on 24 shots. One of five from beyond the arc. Ooh! And some truly horrific defense in that final possession. Like, exactly where was KD on that final possession? What was he watching? What was he looking for? A guy who was allegedly one of, if not the single best player on the planet, absolutely nowhere to be found on that possession. A chance to rip a game on the road after playing like crap for most of that game, and he spent the key moments of that possession running the wrong way, reacting to the wrong things, and generally looking lost. And speaking of lost, he totally lost Tatum on the cut from outside the arc to the basket. And before he hits me from one of his many burner accounts, I'm not saying that anybody expects KD to be Dennis Rodman in his prime, but at least be a little more active than a statue. Do more than just watch. Do more than ball watch. Do more than just react a split second too late to everything. And most of all, dude, put your bleeping phone down. Both of them. All of them. Your actual phone and all your burners. Put them down. Like he and Kyrie played a total of 83 minutes and they look like it. They both look gassed in the very end. And that's going to be a factor, right? It's got to be a factor. If you have these guys going that hard to stay in the game and keep them in the game, and when they exert that much energy, given how little depth this team has, how much do you expect them to have at the end of the game when they have to have it? Of course they're going to be gassed. And yes, I knew all the cliches. All the Celtics did was hold home court. A series does not start until somebody loses at home. Here's what else I know. That game was right there for the Nets. They could have ripped that game. They should have won that game. Then they would have ripped the home court, and then the Celtics would have been back on their heels already. And then the ultimate heel, the flat-earth truther, would have really been feeling himself. Actually, he already was, even in defeat. I'm not even sure he knows they lost. I'm not sure I've ever seen a dude happier with himself after a playoff loss than Kyrie was. But again, more on that later. Just don't come in here and tell me how great they should be feeling going into game two. The hell they should. They had a chance to go up one nothing in that series. They had a chance to totally jack with Boston's heads by coming back from down double digits on the road in a hostile, hostile barn. They had a chance to make a statement and rip the home court, and they failed. That's what yesterday was. If you're the Nets and you have one of the greatest players of all time and another guy who thinks that he's one of the greatest players of all time, there are no moral victories, not in the playoffs. There are only wins and losses. And yesterday was a loss in a game they should have won. They should have won. I'll tell you what. I actually want to hear from Celtic fan. 
I want to hear from a Celtic fan or 10. How much did you enjoy getting in Kyrie's head, getting that win? And how much fire are you going to bring in game two? And have you already started getting fired up, i.e. drinking for game two? Legitimate Celtic fans can describe what yesterday felt like. Go ahead. You go right to the front of the line if you're a legitimate Celtic fan. How good did that feel? Because that's what you do. That's where you live. If you're a parent, you know this. Kids are amazing, but they are expensive. However, with Fabric, protecting your family with term life insurance is surprisingly affordable. Fabric was built specifically for parents to help you manage your family's financial future like a parenting pro, stress-free. And Fabric's new lower prices mean significant savings over other providers with great policies like a million dollars in coverage for less than a dollar a day. And everything is on your schedule with Fabric because it's all online. Less than 10 minutes to apply, and you can be offered coverage instantly with no health exam required. Then just personalize your quote to fit your family's needs, and you will be set with high-quality, affordable protection for your entire family. There is no risk to apply today. Fabric has a 30-day money-back guarantee, and you can cancel at any time. So protect your family with term life insurance right now in just 10 minutes. Apply today at meetfabric.com slash Rome. That's meetfabric.com slash R-O-M-E to start protecting your family right now. M-E-E-T fabric.com slash Rome. Fabric insurance agency policies issued by Vantis Life. Not available in New York and Montana. Prices subject to underwriting and health questions. Chris Herring is joining us. All right, so let me get your thoughts about Golden State. They blow the Nuggets out in game one. Jordan Poole, Chris, had 30 on 13 shots in his first playoff game. When Golden State's got that guy playing like that, how different is that team? A lot different considering that, you know, in particular, Steph Curry missed so much time, and we weren't even sure up until the day of whether he was going to play. The idea that Steph Curry comes off the bench and then acknowledges that the reason he was okay with doing that among others, was that Jordan Poole was playing so well. And the idea that he doesn't mind kind of letting him get his feet under him um, as Steph comes off the bench, on some level you're not missing and you're not as thirsty for Steph Curry's production as he's just trying to get back into a rhythm when Jordan Poole plays like that. I mean, that that's a scary team when you've got three guys that can shoot the way that they can. Um, and, and the idea of being able to get Steph kind of back up to speed um, they didn't miss a step there, and that, that was critical just to be able to kind of have that kind of game one performance. Uh, Nikola Jokic can't really get comfortable defensively with all the shooting they present, and to tire him out defensively um, works wonders for what you're able to kind of do and take away from him offensively in terms of how hard you're making him work. Most teams don't do that, and uh, this is an exception with what Golden State can do. We're talking to Chris Herring. All right, Chris, you have the SI Daily cover today with your piece on the Toronto-Philadelphia series, so let me take you right there. If you had told Nick Nurse before game one that he would hold Joel Embiid and James Harden to 11-32 shooting, what do you think he would have said? And then how do you explain exactly what did happen? Yeah, it's funny. Part of me wonders, because he and I did talk a lot about this as I was writing this piece beforehand, and I was basically kind of asking him, like, it's always a complete mystery box as to what Toronto's going to do defensively and what they were trying to do defensively and trying to make someone other than Embiid beat them. So I, I feel like, on the one hand, Nick Nurse would have smiled if I told him that they'd held Embiid and Harden to 11 of 32 before game one. But I think he probably would have been – he probably would have turned the tables and made himself the reporter for one question and said, how did the other guys shoot? And that was the problem with, with game one is that Tyrese Maxey basically didn't miss 38 points, a career high in the playoffs. And Tobias Harris, who obviously has had his struggles in the playoffs before, goes off for 26. Um, that's not going to cut it. You can't let those guys have 64, 65 points on you in a game because you know that Embiid and Harden, even if they're not efficient, they're still going to score 15, 20 on their own. And that was essentially what happened. And so um, you can't let the rest of the team shoot 50% from three. And the biggest thing, and I think this was kind of where the game was lost in some ways, the Raptors turn their opponents over more than anybody else in the league. They score more off of those turnovers than anybody else in the league. 
the Sixers didn't have a turnover until the third quarter. They had 29 assists against four turnovers. So you can't win games like that. And, um, you know, so they're probably going to try to do a lot of the same thing. But I imagine that they would probably play Embiid and Harden straight up more often just as a way to try to make sure that Maxi and uh, Tobias Harris, Danny Green, people like that aren't getting off the way that they were able to in game one. If that happens, there's no chance in the series, especially with Scotty Barnes being out, Thaddeus Young being out, Gary Trent Jr., maybe their best perimeter shooter being out. Um, they're shorthanded now, and it, it changes the dynamic in my opinion. Yeah, I agree. That's my thing. They're busted up. I think if they're healthy and you get their best shot, they're a really dangerous team, but they are really banged up right now. Mm-hmm. Hey, really quickly, Chris, before you go off off the board with this, I love this. I want to talk to you about a California team that's not in the playoffs but not the Lakers. I want to talk to you about Sacramento. <laughs> the 16th straight year they have missed the postseason. You wrote a piece where you mentioned considering them as a follow-up for the blood in the garden, what intrigues you about them? What made you say that? I mean, they, they are just a team that, you know, I think a lot of first-time authors, when they finish the first book, they think, what next? And I think for a lot of us, it's natural to say, okay, I had success with this one. Let me find something that's in the same vein. And I don't know that there's an NBA team that has as parallel a history, at least over the last 20 or 30 years, as there is with the Kings and the Knicks. Obviously, um, the Knicks are a huge market. Sacramento is not. Um, Sacramento was at risk of losing their team to Seattle. So obviously there's that. But as far as a team having a really wonderful, enchanted period of basketball and then just watching the wheels come off almost instantly after that, um, I think that's kind of what we are looking at when we talk about the Kings. They had a very fun team in those early 2000s. They should have beaten the Lakers once and all sorts of reasons for that, controversial reasons for that. Um, but they've been horrible ever since. And I think there's a pretty clear line as to kind of how that happened. Um, and I think telling that story, I think a lot of people there would love to read the book. I don't know that it would have the biggest readership outside of Sacramento, which is part of the reason I chose not to uh, take it on. But I do think that it's a fascinating story. Um, I don't know that they changed the league as much as those Knicks teams did. So I think that would be the one other factor of maybe why I didn't do it. But I think that it's a fascinating story. I'll tell you what, Chris, Sacramento has always been a really important market to me in this uh, program, and I was there in those days. I remember John Barry, when he played, he said, Rome, yeah. come to Sacramento, come to Sacramento. I said, hey, John, I'll come, and we'll do a tour stop, quote-unquote, if you can deliver me your teammates. And sure enough, I went there not once but twice. And this, this is the crazy thing, Chris. 18,000 people showed up. It was free, but they showed up to see me get on stage with C-Webb, White Chocolate, Vlade, the Maloofs, John Barry. I mean, I saw it firsthand. It was insane. The energy in Mm -hmm. Arco Arena, even for a radio slug like me, was like the most amazing thing you have ever seen. So to your point, outside of Sacramento, I'm not really sure what that book would do, but I saw it firsthand. It was incredible. Hmm. People, people love that team, and I think that it, it speak, you feel it when you're there at the games, and I wish we could feel it more often. It's just been so long since they've been relevant, but there's always a nostalgia when teams have had that long of a dry spell. So that was what intrigued me. It's not to say I would never do it, uh, maybe at some point, but uh, a fascinating story just as far as what they were and what they are right now. Never say never. He is a senior writer at SI, the co-host of Open Floor, SI's NBA show, a New York Times bestselling author. We mentioned the book, Blood in the Garden, which is a tremendous read. Chris, great to have you back. Thank you very much. Always good talking to you. You too, man. Thanks so much. Be good, dude. So the best athletes know that your championship body is not built in a single day. The same is true when it comes to your long-term financial goals. Get financially fit with M1, the finance super app. It is commission-free, and it makes growing your money so much easier, and you can strategize for the end game. Build a custom portfolio or choose a pre-built portfolio that speaks to your goals. Then... Automate your everyday money moves and use your extra time to watch the highlights. They even make it easy to stick to your investing strategy by automatically rebalancing your investments every time you buy into your portfolio, keeping your investments close to where you want them. That way, your portfolio sticks to the plan for the long game. There are no huddle-ups necessary. So what you want to do is go to m1finance.com sports. That's m with the number one, and sign up and see why money, Investopedia, and Yahoo Finance are proud superfans of M1. So am I. That's M, 
the number one.com slash sports. Investing does involve risk, including the risk of loss. M1 Finance LLC, member FINRA slash SIPC. So we're about a month removed from the Browns making that deal for Deshaun Watson and Baker Mayfield is still officially Deshaun Watson's teammate. But the draft is now about a week and a half out, and that may finally change. Because the Mayfield market is heating up. And I know a lot of you haters and people that don't like him were taking a lot of satisfaction in the fact that there was no market. Well, there is. There actually is a market for a guy. And for there to be, quote, a market, that means there has to be multiple buyers. And apparently that appears to be the case. There are multiple teams reportedly interested in Baker Mayfield, according to Browns beat writer Mary Kay Calvert. There are, quote, several interested teams, end of quote, in acquiring Mayfield. And reportedly, it is none other than the Carolina Panthers who have the inside track in landing the first overall pick overall or former first overall pick. To which Jim Rome says, yeah, I like that energy. The energy that multiple teams are inquiring. But no, I don't like the Carolina part of that at all. Listen, first off, I know plenty of you do not like this guy. Do not believe in this guy. Except I'm not that guy. I'm not saying, again, that Baker Mayfield is Patrick Mahomes or Josh Allen or Justin Herbert or Russ or Aaron. I'm not saying any of that. I'm not saying he's in that upper tier of QB1s. And yes, he could be handling his current situation and the Watson trade better than he is. Even if he does feel disrespected, he could still handle it better than he is. However, this is exactly who this guy is. And who he's always been. And what made him the first pick overall in the first place. I personally still believe in Baker Mayfield. I do. Never mind what he did in college. I'm not even saying that. And he had a great college career. He's won on this level. And it says here he will win again on this level. The guy's only one season removed from leading the Browns to their first playoff win in 26 bleeping years. And he did it with a bottom 10 defense in the NFL that year. Yes, last season was rough as hell for him, but it was for the entire Browns team. He was not right physically from the jump. After tearing his labrum in the second week of the year, and he tried to fight through it, he tried to grind through it, and then everything just snowballed on him. I mean, even if you haters, even you haters have to admit, the guy showed a hell of a lot of grit and toughness in trying to play through it. What I'm saying is, a healthy and now even more motivated Baker Mayfield has won in this league, and I think that he will again. We're already talking about a guy who had the ultimate chip on his shoulder, and now it's even bigger than it was before. I'm not saying that that in and of itself is going to make him an upper-tier elite quarterback. It won't, but it's not going to hurt. This guy can win again in the right situation. In the right situation. Carolina is not the right situation. Here's the problem. Baker was just talking about how he had played for four head coaches in four seasons in Cleveland. If he goes to Carolina, he could probably expect more of the same. I mean, whose seat is hotter right now than Matt Rule's? Also, It's not just that instability, and that's a problem. It's not just that. There are so many things wrong with that situation. We're talking about an offense that is, how do I put this, crappy, below not good. We're talking about one of the worst offensive lines in the NFL. We're talking about a front office that has done almost nothing this offseason to improve the overall talent on that side of the ball. I can see why the Panthers want Mayfield. He's definitely an upgrade from what they have. I can see why they want him, but I can't see why he would want anything to do with them. I can't see why any quarterback would want anything to do with the Panthers. I want to make sure you're hearing me on this, right? I want to make myself very clear on this. That was a garbage offense last season. Garbage. The only teams that were worse offensively were Pervin's Jags, the Fighting Joe Judges, and the Texans. Like, we're talking 
crappy offenses. And then you have the Panthers. So exactly what did they do to address that? They brought in Ben McAdoo as their offensive coordinator. Yeah, I'm guessing Baker didn't see that and think, well, damn. They got that Giants reject, Benny Mack. Oh, that changes everything. Yeah, or it changes nothing at all. In fact, it makes it even worse. Why the hell would Baker want any of that? Can you imagine Baker and Benny working together? Neither can I. Hell, if I were Baker, I'd be making it extremely clear to Carolina, you do not want to do this. You do not want anything to do with me because believe me, I want absolutely nothing to do with y'all because this is the most important year of my career. I'm trying to get a new contract. I'm trying to get mine, and there's no way in hell that's happening if I'm playing with yours. Don't make a deal for me. I don't want to be there. Let me put it to you another way. If my guy goes to Carolina, his career is going to go belly up like Ritt did. Tom Hanks went Not Ritt's career, but Ritt's life. Just kidding. Ritt, still not dead. He'll be back soon. I think. Notice I didn't say I hope. Just I think. Anyway, Baker. If Baker ends up in Carolina, there may be no coming back from that. But don't take my word for it. Just ask the dude drafted two picks behind him. Sam Darnold. So, if not Carolina... Then where? How about this? How about he goes to that fast-talking, bubblegum assassin in Seattle? That dude has way more to offer at this point than that slow-talking, vest assassin and alleged genius, Matt Rule. And loving the guys that are in the locker room with us and they play for another move, the relationships that you build during the course of the season like this are you know, unforgettable. And they, they connect you so that you Wait a minute, Alvy, I didn't set that up properly. When asked whether or not he had any interest in possibly making a deal for Baker Mayfield, that bubble, that fast-talking bubblegum assassin had this to say. Loving this game and loving the guys that are in the locker room with us and they play for another move. The relationships that you build during the course of the season like this are you know, unforgettable. And they, they connect you so that you keep battling because that's what, that's what it is. That's what it feels like. Um, you saw how Sounds like he likes him. There's, there's nothing but guys fight for one another. And so that's what we'll do. Um, wherever we're playing, whoever we're playing. I'll tell you who doesn't want anything to do with Baker. Robbie Anderson. Robbie Anderson. I mean, he said as much. He does not want Baker in Carolina. Hey, Robbie, believe me, Baker probably wants even less to do with you than you do him. Or at least that better be the case. Look, I understand Baker badly wants to prove himself, badly wants to show what he can do once again when he's healthy. I get all that. But, dude, you can't do it by yourself. You want to go to the best situation possible. And there aren't a lot of great situations, but I'm here to tell you Carolina's not a good situation. Not for you, it's not. If I'm Baker Mayfield, the first thing I do when I walk into that building is take a steam iron to Matt Rule's closet. Look, Matt, you're probably going to get whacked at the end of the season, if not sooner. The least you can do is not wear a shirt that looks like you slept in it in a closed Murphy bed. Come on, man. You got to look the part. Personal appearance is not show fodder, but... It is if you're the face of a gigantic conglomerate. Clean it up, dude. You got to show up a certain way. You have to lead from the front. And that look and that vibe you're throwing off is not giving anybody any confidence. I mean, sure. You can look frumpy and sloppy as hell if you're a genius and you're winning. Look at the goat himself, the hood. He looks like he pulls his crap right out of the hamper after wearing it five times. He can. He's the hood. He's Bill Belichick. Rule, you can't. My man, mix in a radish and some sprouts. Oh, and an iron. And Baker, not that you're asking for my advice, but you're going to get it anyway because everybody's been coming for you, yet I continue to ride with you, so I'm allowed to volunteer my opinion whether you ask for it or not. My opinion is, do not go anywhere near these dudes. Do not go anywhere near Carolina. 
It's the most important year of your career. You want yours? You want to get paid? Do not go there. Hey, clones, what do we want when we're craving protein and we need more energy? I'll tell you what we don't want. Bars, sugary snacks, energy drinks. Nah, we want beef, pure and simple. So where's the beef? It's in a package of Old Trapper Beef Jerky. Old Trapper is not your father's jerky. Shriveled, dry, tasteless. No, Old Trapper Beef Jerky is made from lean strips of steak and quality spices that are smoked over a real wood fire. So it's tender and tasty. It's never tough. So why is it so good? Because Old Trapper is a 50-year-old family business known for their relentless commitment to quality. In other words, they take smoked beef extremely seriously, and you can taste it in every single bite. Old Trapper is packed with protein and comes in four amazing flavors to satisfy all your cravings. Quality smoked meat at its finest that goes with you wherever you go, to the game, to the gym, to the beach, anywhere at all. So look for Old Trapper in the Clearview bag. You can see the quality that you're buying. Look for it in major retail stores near you. If you don't see it, ask for it by name because no other jerky compares. Old Trapper, what's your beef? Derek Shelton. Derek, it's really good to have you on the program. Thanks for doing it. How are you? Jim, how are you this morning or afternoon or wherever you're at? Uh, yeah, it's good to talk to you, man. Yeah, I'm doing great. It's good to have you here. Great to have you, Derek. All right, so let me start with this. You beat or you were trailing the Nationals 3-0 yesterday, then you come back and you win. Every game that you've won this season has been a comeback victory, so what does that tell you about the attitude and the mindset of the guys in your clubhouse? Well, I think the the never give up, you know, in a, in a short season, and there's been little things in, in every game that's kind of sparked us, whether it's breaking up a double play, you know, tagging and going to third and the ball being thrown away. Uh, you know, wild pitch that we've created because we're aggressive on the bases. The one thing that I think we're learning about our club early on is they really play hard and they're creating pressure and, you know, it's causing people to make mistakes. Derek Shelton's joining us. That's the thing, right? I was going to ask you, when you're winning games and winning them the way you are, so many different ways, with defense, with guys scoring on wild pitches, clutch hitting, it would seem like maybe it's a fluke, except the guys keep doing it over and over again. What's it tell you about their ability to find a way to win no matter what when you're coming off a year where, frankly, these things didn't go your way? Yeah, well, I think what it shows is, is you know, our group is not worried about what we're hearing externally or about what people are saying about them they're going out and playing hard really day and every day. And the one thing that's really stood out with this group is, you know, short and spring training, not a lot of time together, different guys from different organizations coming in along with our own prospects, you know, coming to the big leagues, they've really gelled quickly. And uh, there's a really good dynamic in our dugout that regardless of what happens, I mean, the other day we got down three to nothing in the first before we got an out and come right back score and uh you know they're getting after it every day and it's kind of a really cool thing to see early on hey listen it helps a lot when guys like each other and they pick each other up and they have some success and it starts to feed on itself but to your point you've got so many guys in a shortened spring that had to come together quickly and gel quickly how did you approach that as the manager and pulling it all together I think the biggest thing we did as a staff and and I did in terms of with our meetings with our groups is we were really honest you know, we said uh, we're not going to apologize for how we're doing things. We're, we're changing up, you know, doing things away from tradition, whether it's, you know, how we're going to use our pitching, how we're going to deploy our lineup, and was really open and honest with it and said, if you have questions, like, let's get them out in the open while we're in this room together, and nobody's going to be surprised. And, you know, the one thing I think I've learned throughout my time coaching the big leagues is players want honest answers, and they want to know where they stand. And, you know, a big a big mantra for us is like, if you're going to ask the question, be prepared to get an honest answer. And you may not like it, but you're going to get an honest answer. And, and I think that's the culture that we're, you know, a player-centered type culture that we're trying to create here in, in Pittsburgh. Derek Shelton, my guest, I think that's so big. In fact, I've heard this from athletes, Derek, for three decades. Like, they may not like what you're saying, but at least they know you're shooting them straight. You look them in the eye and you tell them the way it is, and then you follow through. And then i got to ask you this. I mean, the fact is, the team lost 93 games last season. Was anybody going to object to a change in culture, frankly? Like, something had to change, correct? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, one of the big things when we came over as a group three years ago, or, you know, this is our third season, is we wanted to, to adjust in how we do it. And we did a strong reflection of things we did last year and how we can improve on them. And if you can't, you know, kind of look at yourself in the mirror and say, like, hey, we need to, to do things a different way, or we need to take chances, or we need to take risks, then then you're, you're going to stay stagnant, and that's totally not what we're about. We're always looking for, for things that can make us better, 
make our players better, and most importantly, put them in the best position to succeed because ultimately that's what we want to do. We want to find spots where they're going to succeed and, and make sure that we capitalize on those. Pirates are showing a lot of grit and a lot of heart. They're finding ways to win games. You know, in terms of putting guys in the right spots, what about Will Crow, for instance? He went two and two-thirds of scoreless relief yesterday. I bring that up because he still has not given up a run as a reliever this year, but he had been a starter until this year. What led to that change, and what do you make of how he has adapted to that role? He's adapted extremely well. I mean, I think, to your point, he, he started off the season in three or four appearances and been really sharp. Uh, he was a starter. He was a starter that liked to throw a lot, and we knew he liked to throw between outings, and we thought we could capitalize on his ability to like to throw, his ability to use his stuff, and, and put him in a role that maybe mid-game, maybe at the end of game. I mean, the other day he got the, the traditional save, the three-inning save, uh, finishing games, and we're finding the leverage – of lineups and counts that fit him, and he has really adapted to it. It's, it's 100% a credit to, to him, a kid that's been a starter his whole life, to come in in spring training for us to say, like, hey, you're going to pitch in the middle of games, and we're going to find the best spots for you. And he's taken to it, run with it, and you know, I'd be hard-pressed to see you know, who's pitched better in baseball than him so far this mm. year. Pirates manager Derek Shelton's joining us. Derek, you made the point, too, that, look, we're going to do things differently. We're going to change up. We're going to try different things. You said also that you were looking to deploy the bullpen differently this season. We already talked about him. What other kind of changes are you making in that area in the back end, on the bullpen? Well, in the back end, I think we're pitching, you know, we're pitching to the leverage of the situation. I mean, the other day we used David Bednar uh, in the seventh inning, which last year we used him only specifically in the eighth in the ninth, but we felt that, you know, it was the biggest spot in the game and, and his repertoire fit where we were at. He went an inning in two thirds, entering the game in the seventh with one out. And then yesterday he comes in and gets a save. And I think one of the things that we're starting to learn from, from, you know, other teams and other organizations is the way you deploy your bullpen doesn't necessarily have to be, you know, one guy pitches the ninth, one guy pitches the eighth, one guy pitches the seventh. It's, like, let's put that person in the best position to, to get the, the outs they should. And, our, again, our group has adapted to it in the early stages of the season. And we've had the opportunities in the early stages of the season to, to deploy it that way. You know, Derek, it's really interesting. It's kind of a reach, but follow me on this if you could. Like, I've got a son. We have a son that plays high school baseball, and his older brother played high school baseball before going to college and is not playing anymore. But the culture of the thing is so fascinating, even to me. Like, I've been a talk show host for 30 years. But to see the kids come up, and you know how it is right now, right? They start at a very early age, and they all come up together, and they play travel ball, and they play – they play pony or they play cold and then they play high school baseball just the culture of the thing is so fascinating even on that level your father ron coached high school baseball so i'm curious what was it like to grow up in the game and be the son of a coach uh it was fun it was where my passion's from i mean my dad is the biggest pirates fan of all time right now he lives and dies on every pitch uh still but i think the culture from that was the fact that you love the game you know, if you if your father's a high school coach, you know, I was very fortunate that if we wanted to go to the gym at seven o'clock at night and hit or shoot hoops or do anything, he had the keys to it. So we could always facilitate that. And when you're able to do that growing up, I think your your passion for sports in and of itself, and it's really important, you know, for kids to play all sports, but we knew nothing other than that. You know, we it's not like it's not like at Christmas time we were asking for toys. We were asking for jerseys and helmets and, you know, balls and bats and, and things that we could go do it. And, you know, I really appreciate how my dad and mom raised me because of the fact that's that's where my passion for, for the game has come from. So, Derek, not to let that point slide, the point that you just made, you kind of slipped that in. Even in this era of specialization, even today, do you still feel that it's really important for kids to play multiple sports and not just lock in on that one thing? I, I think so. I think we're finding that, you know, if you talk to people that study motor learning and, and it's a big part of how we practice and who we talk to, we have a guy on staff that specifically, you know, has studied that. You find kids are better athletes if they play other sports. And, you know, soccer is becoming really big in the United States over the last 15 years. And the dexterity that in playing soccer is perfect for middle infielders. And I, I think that's why we see what, you know, infielders that come out of latin america that have played soccer growing up why they move around the bag so well in the united states we have to make sure that kids play multiple sports because it just is going to make them better 
And then the other thing is, is I mean, you know from having sons that played, is kids can get burnt out. If you go play 100 games as a 12-year-old, you know, in, in a uh, baseball season, if you live in a warm-weather climate, by the time they're 18, they don't want to play because they've played so much. Let them go out and have fun and do other things. And I, I think it's extremely important as we, as we move forward, uh, you know, in our society today. Derek, you nailed it. I mean, I hate to say it. I, actually, I don't hate to say it. I was proud of the decision. Like, it kind of disappointed me on some level because he had worked so hard to get to this point. But our older son did stop his senior year of high school. Like, played all the way through and then got to his senior year and there was a new coach. And the coach said, you're my guy. You're my captain. And he just had enough. So I think to your point, there is that burnout. You mentioned your dad is the biggest Pirates fan there is. When you took over that job, you knew there was going to be a lot of work. However, you know what Pittsburgh is like as a sports town. It's an amazing sports town. There's an amazing history and tradition with that franchise. Do you ever allow yourself to imagine what it might feel like to be competing for the division and postseason spots in September and playing in front of a packed house? Yeah, I'm, I'm excited for that. I mean, there, like you said, there is passion in this city and and they love their sports team. They love the black and gold. And the one thing that, that when we took over, when, you know, Travis Williams became the president and Ben Charrington became the GM and I came in as a manager, we put a plan in place. And the one, one thing that's the most important thing for Ben and for us all is that we've stuck to that plan. You know, we've made difficult trades. We've traded, you know, people that were really good major league players and acquired, but our farm system you know, has been built that it's one of the top two in the game right now. And we're starting to see the fruits of that. And, you know, one of the things that really stood out for me in spring training was the first time because of, you know, COVID the last few years, being able to see these prospects and being able to see them in major league games and realize, like, these guys are good and they're close. And the one credit, the biggest credit I give to our fans is they've trusted this process. And it's going to be a whole hell of a lot of fun. I'm telling you, when we get a packed house at PNC and, you know, we're playing those games late in September for, uh, you know, four division title, four playoff, because there's a ton of passion there, and I think we're going to see it. You know, I'd love to see that. Derek Shelton joins me for another moment or so. You know, talking to you like this, it sounds like, and you sound like you've been doing this forever, but if you go back a little bit, you worked in the Yankees minor league system, you had been in the pros with Cleveland, Tampa Bay, Toronto, and Minnesota. What I'm saying is you've got a ton of experience. What was it like to move into the manager's seat of a major league team? I think the, you know, nothing prepares you for it. And I, I thought being a bench coach, I was fortunate. I was a bench coach for, for Paul Molitor and for, for Rocco Baldelli. And they involved me a lot when I was a bench coach. And I thought like, yeah, okay, this is going to be a seamless transition. The one thing you learn is that everything that happens in the day comes through your office. And that was the biggest personally for me, you know, challenge is that whatever you write down, I don't know how you are, but like I'm a big list guy. I write down lists and I think I'm going to get my day planned. And you get to two things because there's something that comes up, whether it's with the medical group, whether it's with the performance group, whether it's with one of your players, a nutritionist, you know, one of your coaches, there's things that blow up your day throughout the day. And I don't think until you live it, you're prepared for it. And then, you know, the second part of it, I didn't plan on taking over a team and then, you know, I've, <laughs> global pandemic hitting so i learned a lot about a lot of things in a short period of time mm, Derek, i got about a minute well you mentioned paul molitor molly was such an amazing player what was it like to see him manage and work alongside him what was your biggest takeaway from working alongside him my biggest takeaway is he misses nothing on the field and it's why he was such a great player i mean i grew up between right in between chicago and milwaukee so was able to watch molly play when he was in his prime and he never missed anything, anything that happened on the field he saw. And it really made my awareness heightened because at the time I thought like, oh, I pay attention. I'm aware of things. He would point out such small things in the game that it made me focus on the game better. It made me ask him better questions of what he was seeing. And, and ultimately, I'm, I'm extremely fortunate that I was able to, to work for him because he was great to me. What a great answer that is. I'm so glad I asked that question. That's really interesting. Derek Shelton is the manager of the Pittsburgh Pirates. They are playing really good ball. Like I said, very gritty. They're coming back on everybody. Derek, what a great conversation. Really appreciate you. Thanks for making time. That was a lot of fun. All right, Jim. Thanks for having me on. Uh, have a great day. Let's do it again. Skip. Listen, with prices soaring at the pump, Discover's got your back with cash back. Use Discover to earn 5% cash back at gas stations and Target now through June on up to $1,500 in purchases when you activate. 
We know every single dollar matters right now, but you can count on us. Get up to $75 cash back this quarter with Discover It Card. Limitations do apply. Learn more at discover.com slash rewards. Discover.com slash rewards. The USFL is a thing. It's back. And no, it's not 1983. What would they give to get any kind of run at all? Especially now. The NFL draft is coming up. Major League Baseball is underway. The NBA postseason is underway. How the hell? How the hell are they going to get any run at all right now? And here I am trying to decide at the top of our number three, do I talk about Kyrie or CP3? And yet I'm going to talk USFL? How the hell does that happen? And yet I will. The USFL did not debut. Well, it actually did. It came back this weekend. And no, I did not wake up in 1983. I wish the hell I did. But I did not. No, it's a real thing and it really is back and they're actually playing games. And the games are getting some run, some attention. My guy Jeff Fisher was out there. Jeff Fisher. Yo, Fish. 818 for life. Jeff Fisher was Valley. He was San Fernando Valley, USC. He's out there rocking a backwards lid. Paxton Lynch, Shea Patterson, continued their quarterback careers looking exactly like Paxton Lynch and Shea Patterson. And that was all on the same team. My man Fish with his backward lids or backwards lid and two washed up quarterbacks all on the same team looking like they all look. But that's not the biggest USFL story. Although Jeff Fisher did get a lot of run on social. The biggest USFL story of the weekend happened off the field because the league aired a hard knock style clip during the Fox Saturday pregame show. The show featured running back Davion Smith. Davion Smith getting cut. And not for poor play. Not for missing practice. Not for showing up late for meetings. Not for missing the team private jet or private bus or whatever they used to travel to and fro in this league. No, dude got broken off for trying to get some pizza instead of chicken salad at the team hotel. You heard that right. Dude got the axe from Pittsburgh Maulers head coach Kirby Wilson because he did not want to eat chicken salad. My man, like writ before him, is not about that life. The salad life. The healthy life. The lettuce life. And I don't mean like cron. I mean lettuce. Iceberg. Romaine. You don't even have to take my word for it since the league thought that it was in their best interest. And by the way, it was. Otherwise, I'm not talking about them. The league took it upon itself to air the entire thing on national TV, which everybody loved except for the guy who got fired over lettuce. When I first talked to you guys on March 22nd, I had a handbook. I covered some items that were very important to me. Line 46 addresses that. Any disrespect of football or members, staff, USFL, hotel, etc., would not be tolerated. And it's been brought to my attention that has occurred with you. So unfortunately, unfortunately, hear me out, unfortunately, the cost of doing business, I'm going to have to let you go. Okay? I mean, my man had to be like, it's an episode of punk, right? It's an episode of prank, right? Dodger and Jano. Dodger, Jano, and I, after that long baseball game, I digress. We were looking for something on Saturday night to do because the day was just so wacky and, and weird. And we'd had, we'd gone out Friday night. If you saw my Instagram story, you know I went hard on Friday night. So Saturday, we wanted to chill. You know what we did? We watched Jackass 4. Dodger, Jano, and I. This guy must have been like, is this an episode of Jackass? Or punked or prank? Wait, you're, you're firing me because I tried to switch out my salad for pizza? Anyway, the coach, Kirby's like, yeah, dude, we covered this in the handbook. We covered this. It's unreal, but that was not an episode of punked. It's unreal that that is real. Again, it's about chicken salad. A chicken salad altercation at the team hotel. 
What are we talking about? What are we talking about here? We're talking about chicken salad. Not the game that I'd die for. Not the game. Not the game I'd die for, but chicken salad. What are we talking about? Chicken salad? How silly is that? We're talking about salad. Chicken salad. That's it, dude. Chicken bleeping salad. And Coach Badass was not in any mood to hear Davion's story about or side of that story. He just dropped the hammer because the Maulers don't F around when it comes to chicken salad. You disrespect canned poultry tossed with mayo and celery, then they don't have a spot for you, period. Line 46, brah. We talked about it. Line 46, bro. Read it. Read it again. It's all right there in the manual. Listen, I understand that there's got to be a standard. You have to have a standard. The standard is the standard, and you put that standard over everybody's feelings. However, it seems like a pretty insane standard. And I'm not really sure how that punishment fits that crime, or even if that's a crime at all. Because when he tried to tell his side of the story, the coach was not interested in hearing it. But, and I'm with Davion, he was going to let him know his side of the story anyway, and I'm glad that he did. I didn't say anything disrespectful. He said, is that going to be a problem? I said, yes. I said, I walked away. I mean, I didn't think that was disrespectful. Me saying yes, I don't eat chicken salad. And I was like, is there another option? Walked in with pizza, and I was like, can I get a slice of pizza? He said, no. I was like, he said, it's not going to be a problem. I said, yes. That's all I said. I didn't say no cuss word, nothing. That's all I said. I promise you, no disrespect on my dad's life. I promise you, I didn't say nothing disrespectful besides yes. And, and I appreciate you sharing that. But the matter is, it's done. It's done. <sighs> I appreciate you sharing that. But good luck. Tell you what, like, I think he held that pretty well. Like, he could have snapped. He said, listen, I didn't disrespect anybody. Here's what happened. I don't do salad. I saw somebody carrying a piece of pizza. I said, may I have a piece of pizza? The guy said, no. Is that a problem? And I said, yes, it is. And I got up and I walked out. I didn't disrespect him. I didn't cuss. I swear on my father's grave. Coach is all... I appreciate you sharing that, but you already are fired. Good luck. Good luck. That had to have been the least sincere good luck of all time. Good luck. Hey, how about I appreciate you sharing that? No, you don't. No, you don't. You don't want to hear any of that. This is seriously... What we're cutting guys over in the USFL. I mean, a good thing because you know where there's no way in hell I'm talking about that league otherwise today. It worked, man. They had to sacrifice somebody, and they did. My man right there. Bush League football going to be Bush League football, I guess. I mean, here's the thing. Now the bar has been set. Now you have your standard. If you're whacking guys for garbage like that, how the hell are you even going to be able to field a team? If that's line 46, and line 46 obviously covers a lot of things, right? What happens when a dude does show up late? What happens when dudes throw hands at practice? What happens if somebody raises a question that the coach doesn't like in a team meeting? Is it a one-strike policy across the board over there? Line 46 addresses that. Addresses what? Line 46 addresses that. Okay, my bad. I get it. Line 46. Why don't we talk line 46? Tell me again what line 46 is. Line 46 addresses that. Any disrespect of football or members, staff, USFL, hotel, etc. would not be tolerated. The man seriously is trying to say that any disrespect whatsoever will get you capped. Man, you know the USFL is different from the NFL. I see people in the NFL committing violent crimes and nothing happens. This guy committed cruel and inhumane 
axe on salad and got broken off. Felonious salad abandonment. I mean, I don't know. Like, my man's been coaching in college and the NFL since the mid-'80s. I know he's been in some locker rooms. I know he knows what disrespect is, and I can appreciate that he doesn't want to tolerate disrespect. But what are we talking about here? We're talking about salad. We're talking about a football team, not a monastery. I mean, listen, I get it. You want to maintain a level of respect. There's a right way and a wrong way. I can respect your need for respect. But did this guy really even disrespect anybody other than the chicken? The actual bird, I mean. He doesn't eat chicken salad. Did he demean and disrespect the wait staff by asking if he could sub out the salad for a piece of pie? I don't know. I guess it depends on what your definition of disrespect is. It just seems pretty harsh to cut a guy over that, even if he only is making like 50 bucks a game or whatever they're paying their dudes. I mean, Kerr. Line 46. My man, I get it. Line 46. I get it. You've waited a long time for this opportunity, almost four decades, to get your first ever head coaching job. Man, you earned it. I get it. But to whack a dude over some chicken salad, Kirby's like, yo, we are setting a culture here. And here in the National Chicken Salad League, we have to respect the product above all. And that product is chicken bleeping salad. You get with the program, you get the hell out. Oh, and good luck. Good luck. I got to be straight. I love the old USFL. And I wanted nothing to do with the new USFL. Until I found out dudes were getting straight fired for not eating their vegetables. <laughs> like, I can't even believe this is real. And if it is a publicity stunt, mission accomplished, I guess. Like if the plan was to get us talking about the league, the plan worked. I literally just spent like eight minutes on it instead of a Kyrie reset or a CP3 take. Minor league football still looks a hell of a lot like minor league football, but there's your pub, USFL. That is now the saddest football-related pizza story ever. Even sadder than Pervin Liars' sad tunnel pizza. That was devastating. Which was the standard up until then. All because Vince Lombardi over here had to go all line 46 on Pizza Guy. Line 46. No one not named The Hood is going to get away with something like that. Even The Hood wouldn't go there. But if he did, it would probably sound something like this. Yeah, so, uh, so look, uh, uh, sit down. Yeah, sit down, take a load off. Hey, listen, it's been brought to my attention that, uh, that you, uh, you ordered some tacos down there in the cafeteria today. Uh, listen, uh, the Patriot Way, yeah, yeah, read up on that. Huh? Huh? We don't do tacos here. Not street tacos, not chicken tacos, not shredded beef tacos, not vegetarian tacos. We just tacos. We don't do them. That's not how it works around here. You think I won six freaking Super Bowls letting anybody eat whatever the hell they want? No. No. Go ask Stevie over there. Hey, Stevie, stop licking your face. Go ask Stevie over there. It's all, it's all about the Brussels sprouts on Monday, all right? If you don't like it, you can hit the road. It's called the Patriot Way for a reason. It's not called the Taco Way. It's not called the Individual Way. It's not called Eat Whatever the Hell You Want Way. It's called the Patriot Way. All right? We all do it the same way. Brussels sprouts on Monday, tuna casserole on Tuesday, tofu on Wednesday. You know what? You're fired. Get the hell out of my office. We don't disrespect the Brussels sprouts around here. And I'll tell you what else we don't do. And don't let that door hit you in the ash. Get the hell out of here. We certainly do not order off-menu. Off-menu is not the Patriot way. Don't let the door hit you. Oh, and good luck, dumbass. Good luck. Steven, hey, man. Hey, hey, hey. I said stop licking yourself. Hey, USFL, was that some kind of misdirection? Like, we don't know. How, that way we won't notice how terrible the play on the field is. Or that there were 50 people in the stands. Here's hoping a mauler asks the fry guy to put additional salt on his curly fries and he gets broken off for conduct detrimental. Or maybe next week, 
one of the Tampa Bay bandits can get fired for asking the housekeeper for an extra towel. Line 46. And then after that, a Houston gambler gets whacked for passing on the key lime pie for a slice of carrot cake. Hey, by the line way, that 46. would be a fireable offense. Key lime pie is awesome. Like the best thing ever. Line 46. Line 46, yo. Steven, a.k.a. the chicken man. Steven, what's up? Hi, Jim. Uh, thank you for picking up line 46. Uh, can someone explain to me why are these athletes hating on chicken salad? Man up, you crybabies, and eat that healthy and very nutritious meal rather than the grease ball coated in cheese and tomato sauce. So this past Easter, as I was in church praising the Holy Rabbit, repenting for my numerous sins, and looking for diabetes, candy-filled eggs with the younglings, I had an epiphany. Myself and the clones have not been thankful enough, particularly towards you, Jim. I mean, you say it all the time that you have not been giving yourself the credit that you deserve, and I am here to bestow said credit. For example, this past year you got Slarome to put down the booze, attend AA meetings, and start seeking a higher power. Truly a changed man. You inspired Drizzle to get a minimum wage job, joining the rest of us with shelter and a steady stream of food. No more back alley spaghetti dinners with IRA. You even inspired IRA to gather all his loose change and bet the whole cardboard box on horse racing, bringing back five gur on a $25 bet. Hopefully he puts that towards publishing his latest novel, From Rags to Slightly Better Rags. Speaking of horse racing, Jim, I think uh, a black horse has entered the jungle's biggest race, and the jockey riding that horse is dragging a bigger one than the horse is. The chicken man. Not a very good call. Lynn in Davis. Hi, Lynn. How are you? Hey, Rogan Loom's dad. First time, long time. Loved your reminiscing about your Sacktown tour stops. My husband and I were at your September 21st, 2002 tour stop. Place was rocking. Sort of drug my husband to the tour stop, but it paid off for him in spades. When you introduced Dodger Jano, and she rolled out onto that stage in those black leather pants and jacket, my dude's eyes bulged and popped and have never properly retracted. Things have not been the same for us since then. This is corny, but since the tour stop, I have both our tour stop passes hung on the wall in front of my computer. Really admire your work ethic and how you built your brand. I'm out. You are the best, Lynn. That was so great on so many levels. Let me tell you why. First of all, she said hi to Rogan Loam's dad. I like that. Rogan Loam. You have no idea how funny that is, what she just said about when Dodger Jano rolled out on stage. First of all, I don't, I vaguely remember that because, you know, Dodger Jano won't even call this show. She'll text me to let me know that I should not say what I just said, but she won't actually come on the air, right? She's only done it once in my entire career. She's only called once. But what she said is so funny, so funny that she said, when Dodger Jano walked up on that stage with those black leather pants, my eye, my husband's eyes were bulging and have never since not protracted. It's funny because I would always give her a hard time about her, quote, tour stop pants. Dodger Jano had a couple of sets of leather pants that she would break out for the tour stops and only the tour stops. So we always laughed about her tour stop pants. That is so funny that 20 years later, Lynn said she walked up on stage with her leather pants on, her tour stop pants. That is really, really funny. A tour stop, a tour stop, a tour stop. Eric in Orlando. Eric, what's going on? Romy, how you doing, buddy? Good, dude. How about you? It's been a long time. <laughs> I want to do... I missed your... Your trip to New Mexico, is there anything I need to know that you did that might interest me? Yeah, I can tell you all about that, Eric. Thank you very much. First of all, I will tell you this. No sooner than he shows up on the air, James Kelly texts me this dip bleep, but went with the actual word. Why are you so bitter? He came up with a great nickname for you, Big Head. 
If not for you, dude, or if not for him, you probably wouldn't even have your brand. Big head bets. Trying to figure out what Eric in Orlando is doing asking me. You went to New Mexico. Is there anything that happened on that trip that I should know about? Well, I don't know, dude. I was not near any body of water, so no. I didn't fish, so no. I've never shared with you any details of any other trip that I've taken, Eric. What am I missing here? Why are you asking me about a trip that I took to New Mexico? Bro, you and I are not here to have conversations. We're not boys. I am the host. You are the listener. You got extremely lucky one day when you dropped a funny nickname on a guy with a colossally sized cranium. What's going on here, bro? Good night now!